Hey podcast listeners, welcome to episode 12 of Misfits. This is where I speak to the rebels, the troublemakers and the unconventionals in Singapore. Try to see things as how they see it and to learn from them. Some of these individuals include Danny Wong who started a million dollar cupcake empire, Betty Lee who at the age of 60 went backpacking around the world for 400 days and a whole lot more. And today on the show, we have Adrian Tan, the author of two national best-selling books, The Teenage Textbook and The Teenage Workbook. These books have been made into a movie, The Teenage Textbook Movie, which topped the box office in Singapore for four weeks. Adrian also judges at the International Emmy Award-nominated debate TV show, The Arena, and he also helps uh, in writing a story uh, for The Pupil. In this conversation, we spoke about the argument versus persuasion and how he used the later in his law practice, the writing process behind the teenage textbook, why he chose to be in law, and much, much more. So without further ado, like I usually say, uh, I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation because I really, really do. So welcome to the show, Adrian. Thanks, Brian. It's a very interesting place you have here. Yeah, so, I mean, if you were to take a step at, you know, describing your upbringing, like, when during your childhood, how would you describe it? Um, so, it was a very post-1965 upbringing. I was um, born in 1966, one year after independence, and both my parents were teachers. And, and they moved to an HDB um, in Commonwealth Close, Block 81. It was one of the tallest... Uh, blocks in Singapore. It had 16 stories, and, and that was, um, it was so remarkable that people would refer to it uh, by its height, Tap Lak Lao. So if you tell the taxi driver, oh, take me to Tap Lak Lao, take me to 16 stories, they will know straight away that it's this HDB block. Oh, wow. Yes. So that is the newest and tallest. I mean. At that time, it was like totally state of the art. Every five floors, there was a lift landing. It was really awesome. And uh, yeah, we had a common corridor, we had two bedrooms, we had um, one bathroom and, and this kitchen, galley-style kitchen. And then we had these uh, louvers into the corridor. So when my dad became the first person to buy a television on his floor, then we'd watch TV and then all the neighbours would be outside on the corridor looking in through the louver window. No way, and back then, was it already colour or still black and white? No, it was like black and white, and then my dad would say it was colour, can't you see it, what's wrong with you? And I'd be like, oh gee, something wrong with my eyes. Um, then we had the first uh, telephone. Um, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a dial telephone from, from Singapore Telecoms at that time. It was, uh, we had five numbers, five digits or six digits or something. It was, it was really... Um, very uh, primitive. And then people would use our telephone. So we have this whole row on um, um, 99K, that was my floor. Um, so everybody on floor K, they would use our phone. So I'll be in, in, at home, somebody would ring, and then they'll say, I want to speak to so-and-so. Then I'll run out and knock on the neighbor's door and say, oh, there's a phone call for you. Then they'll come over and use the phone. Wow. So yeah. w w was that, was that uh, a business, like turned into a business thing or was it just it's community? All, it's all very communal. Um, so when you live in an HGB block with a common corridor, you get to know everyone and there's a lot of sharing involved. So if somebody cooks something, everybody knows what you're cooking. 
and then you have to share, so you have to cook extra. On the other hand, you can always borrow stuff from people, watch their TV, use their phones. Um, my neighbor two doors down was my nanny, or she looked after me and my brother when my parents went off to work. So she was a washerwoman, but uh, she also spent her time um, being a nanny. And then the, the person downstairs baked bread. So in, in their HDB flat, they actually had a huge charcoal oven and they literally made bread and sold it out of their flat. Which by today's standard would be a Completely fire. illegal, fire hazard. Then you'd have like Facebook complaints and public shaming and stuff like that. But in those days, we just ate the bread. Do you have any brothers and sisters? So I have a younger brother. He's uh, uh, three years younger than me. Um, he's he's a, a creative person, very creative. Does a lot of stuff, travels all around then, the world. Would you say then your, your parents, are they an the, uh, English teacher and hence? So they were primary school teachers. Okay. I, I don't know how much influence they had. Obviously, they, every parent would have some influence over their, their kids. But I think we were raised by all our neighbours and we spent a lot of time with them and on our own. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the reason why I asked that was because, you know, you picked up the English language. Yes, that, that happened only because I went to the right school. So when I was in Commonwealth Close, our whole floor, for some reason, was all Hainanese. Mostly, uh, there were people there who spoke Hainanese. I think they were from the same village or something. We were resettled. There was only one person on the floor who didn't speak Hainanese and she spoke Cantonese, and we all regarded her with suspicion. It's like, oh, she speaks Cantonese. Um, and then my parents um, went to ballot me, and I got into ACS. And the first day I came back, I told my mom, everyone in school speaks English, and which I found very strange. The, the fact that I went to ACS changed my life. Uh, I, I, I think it was a very good school, and it gave me a lot of opportunities. It made me meet a lot of people who are not from my part of the world. And um, it gave me ideas and ambitions. So I'm very unhappy if, if the good schools are kept away from the rest of Singapore. Right now, all our schools, the good schools are put in Bukit Timah. And it's surrounded by upper middle class people who, who live in private property and, and the kids they start to form their own elite community. And it's very hard for the rest of Singapore to break in. So if you're in the heartlands and you want an opportunity to see what life is like on the other side of the tracks, you may not get that nowadays. When I went to ACS, um, I was living in a three-room flat and I went to my, my classmate's house. Um, I, I had a lot of friends and they were very nice people. I went to their house and thought, wow, this... This is awesome. This is not, um, this, this house is on the ground. They don't, they don't live in the sky. They have gardens. They have like places where they can put cars. And then they have places for useless things like a fountain, a pond. They have people who work there for them like a gardener. And, and um, I was, I, it made me want to explore that life. And it made me want to, to see how could I get that life? Now, if I was not in ACS, if I was in a neighborhood school, I think I, I, I might have a narrower um, outlook on life. 
So I think that it's a good thing if elite schools... In fact, I want a law where a certain percentage of places in elite schools are given to people who are, who, who are completely from a different social strata. Yeah. No, I think that's very fascinating because mm. HDB have a, a law where we need yes. to have a certain amount of percentage of right. race. That's right, good point. Why not apply it to schools as well? Uh, in fact, we don't even have a race quota in schools. Um, when I went to Hua Chong, um, uh, in the 1980s, uh, that's when I, um, after ACS, after ACS uh, AC, Anglo-Chinese primary school, then the secondary school, and then I went to Hua Chong, which is a whole different story. Um, and there, it was as Chinese as can be. They made school announcements in Chinese. Um, the school song was in Chinese. When the, the school played at sports, people cheered in Chinese. And if you wanted to ask a girl out, you know, it's Chinese, and then you sit around a campfire holding hands. It's very not ACS. Anyway, they had a Malay language school, a uh, Malay language club there. Uh, there, there were non-Chinese people. My friends in Hua Chong were not Chinese. Uh, they were Eurasians, Indians, Malays. But I worry now that um, Hua Chong, or I shouldn't name names, but schools may be all one race. Then kids can grow up from beginning to end and become adults, and they never meet somebody who's of a different religion, uh, different race, or speaks different, from a different social background. That, that, that's a terrible way to grow up. I mean, that problem will be solved once you enter NS. Yes. That, um, but okay. for the males part only. Yes, that's right. For boys, in theory, in theory, you would go to NS and you would mix with every level of society. But we know it's not true. Right? If, you, if, if you have um, good academic results, if you're a scholar, or if you're, if you're from... In my time, it was called the A-levels. Um, it's still called the A-levels. It's still called the A-levels. Yeah. Okay, um, good, because... Yeah. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm lost track, but it's, it sounds like that. Uh, thanks. So IB, um, I presume they would put everybody from um, A-levels, my time, in one group. So we wouldn't mix with people from other groups. And, and so, in theory, national service is supposed to be the great leveler. It's, a, it's the benefit that we're supposed to get from NS. But in practice, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that we meet people from all over Singapore. Anyway, 18 is a bit too late to start mixing around. We've we got to get Singaporeans at, at primary school or preschool to start having um, Muslim friends, Hindu friends, atheist friends, um, and, and friends who are Chinese, Malay, Indians. If we have race quotas in HDB flats, and that's a good idea, if we have race quotas in GRC so that our politicians are of, of a good mix, why not have them in schools? We, we don't have them. I mean, you made a good point with that. I'm thinking that the race, the race quota, the reason why it got started is because of racial cohesion. That's right. Right, exactly. so right now, do you find that we still have that problem? Because then the reason was for that. Well, it's, it's a good time to ask that question because we're amending our constitution to say that we need to safeguard um, minority status to make sure that um, the president of Singapore can sometimes be from another race, not from the majority race. Yeah. And that's because there's a real concern that maybe Singaporeans... Uh, will tend to vote according to racial lines. I don't believe it, but 
some people think that's the case. I, I think it's quite heartening if you look at something like the latest Yahoo poll about who would be Prime Minister of Singapore and find a way um, Singaporeans chose uh, Taman Shamugaratnam as being their choice for being Prime Minister, even though he's not Chinese. And I think they don't even think of Tarman as Chinese. They, they don't think of him as anything but just a competent Singaporean person. And maybe Singaporeans are becoming more race blind. Uh, we ought to go in that direction. Which is a good thing. I think it's a great thing. So, even with, so with that being said, then yes. maybe they can relook into the whole race quota thing in HDB. Where, where is, is it something that they still need to uphold? Or, I mean, it's just something to relook into. I don't think that if there's no need, then we don't need to, to, to well, change it. We no, don't but, change what's not right, broken. It's, it's, it's the perfect time to, to ask this question because either the race quota is very important, in which case, don't just stop at HDB estates, but apply it to schools. Or we've, we've outlived it, in which case, don't apply it to schools, but take it out of HDB. This is, it just got to the politics side, which, which will come by in, 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 in one of the... Yeah, no, I, I really love talking about this. Uh, it's just that I'm not... I mean, I, I just need to do some pre ammunition saying that like, I'm not the best person to talk about politics. Sure. Uh, just if I were to ask questions, like, you know, pardon I, I, me. I actually didn't intend to talk about politics. I was talking about growing up. Sorry about that. I, I sort of went off. No, no, I, I would love to talk about it. It's just that when, when I... Spoke to Loretta, which you know, yes. your mutual friend, right? Yes. And then I was like, what is, what is MVP thing? So right, right, she, right. in the interview, gave me a lesson on what MVP is. Well, <laughs> well, I, so we I, might need to come to that if we. Yeah, we, we but we, back we. to Commonwealth Close. So yes. uh, I lived there until I was primary three, went to Tulok Blanga. Uh, Tulok Blanga it, uh, was a weird new town as well. Um, Quick question there. Yes. Commonwealth Close. So you were educated on English or? Mandarin or dialect? Uh, so it was, it was English because I went to ACS. Um, so um, ACS is an English um, So ACS school. is the secondary? It, primary as well. Oh, it's primary as well. Yeah. Okay, okay. So, um, so when, you, when were you in Commonwealth from print? Is uh, it... oh, I was in Commonwealth Close. Um, that's my address. Oh, okay. That was where so my flat primary was. primary school is already ACS, ACS and then right. secondary school ACS that's as correct. well. Yeah. Okay, got it now. Yeah. So I went to the... Uh, before that, I was in the PAP kindergarten. Um, so I was indoctrinated from a very young age. Yeah. Uh, it was a great kindergarten. I met um, a lot of people there. Very interesting friends. Um, and uh, it's this whole idea of you have a kindergarten where... You, you actually learn things versus playing around. So I, I have this opinion of modern uh, preschool ah. as being a lot of, it's, it's a lot very play-oriented, but the PAP kindergarten, as you can expect, is all about like learning stuff and having exams and being graded. Um, and I think that's important in a school system. So I'm not in favor of people talking about school in a very soft and fluffy way. No, I think both are important, in fact, uh, I think I recently read that like Elon is self-schooling yes. his his little oh, ones. Yeah, and he basically you know the idea of uh, intriguing them with yes. uh, how to do this. Then while learning how to solve this problem, they learn the necessary skill that is needed. Yeah. Okay. I get that. Yeah. yeah. That that's something we we need to improve on. Correct. And which is also what uh, I think Kevin is doing here 
uh, with uh, Dylan. Uh, right. Actually, I didn't manage to get you to meet Dylan, but Dylan's fascinating. So Kevin also like spent time uh, with his child. I think in a three to five span, Dylan went on two TEDx talk, um, okay. a two thousand word essay on Esquire, wow. uh, as well as a successfully funded Kickstarter campaign. Wow. Um, all below the age of I would like to say fourteen, fifteen. Right. Wow. Yes. Okay. Right. That's uh, early start. Yeah. And, yeah. And not saying that his, acad- his academic wouldn't be, it's nothing to, to be shouted for. Well, actually, but the rest? I, that's where I, I don't know. Because if you have people who are homeschooled, I worry that they don't socialize. And also, he doesn't, he's not homeschooled. Okay. And, and the other thing is, I, I do think it's important to measure how fast children are developing. Um, yeah. So after that, I went to Chilokbanga. Yeah. I, I moved there. Do you uh, the predisposition to the English language? Right. Did, when did you figure it out, or did that, you even figure it out at that's all? That's from ACS. That's that's uh, something. Uh, the school at that time was very careful about how you learned English. So the teachers spoke very well, and they were careful to teach us how to use English properly. Um, we now I don't want to criticize people, but my so my friends have kids. I don't have kids, and one of the things they observed was that the teachers who teach their kids have worse English than their kids. The, the teachers don't speak properly and they can't write properly, and that's a worry. I I think in ACS it was important that we learn English properly, and from that point I realized first. When I went back and told my mom, everybody speaks English, I realized that, oh, it's pretty important, and I should learn to use it well, and if, it, if I can use it well, I can influence more people. So it, it's a great tool. Uh, people think that language is, is just a way of communicating. It's more than that. It's also a badge. It's, it's, it, the listener immediately forms an impression of where you are in his world. And if you use language properly, you can get a lot more done. You can change things. Do you see it then already? Like what you say or how? I, I, I thought it was powerful. And I thought that um, it was interesting. And my parents were very supportive because they, they gave me things to read. So there was no internet in those days. So I just had to read whatever I could find. Books were expensive. Um, Singapore, in those days, if you wanted to buy a paperback book, it would be something like $12. And that, that was a lot of money in those days. How and we equate $12? Well, $12, to... I think, would be today something like $40. Right, for a book. And, and then you read it, and then you... There, there were no second-hand book, bookstores, so you had to buy it new, and then you had to keep it. And my parents weren't rich, so I, I had to figure out ways to, to read stuff, to, to learn stuff. Um, so I would then end up reading stuff that my father uh, had lying around, uh, which may not have been age appropriate. But in those days, you just read whatever you can. Um, your father then was also reading English. Oh right, books. yes, yes. He he his English is is good was good. Um, plus, in those days, the newspapers were better written. Um, the Straits Times was very well written. You couldn't spot many errors in the Straits Times. And today, I think it's, there's a lot more content. 
um, and it's quite interesting, but I don't think they edit it as carefully. So if you wanted to learn English from reading the Straits Times, you would have problems. Kids today have a lot more opportunities, but they have to be more discriminating um, about what they want to read, if they want to improve their language. So those days I read whatever my father had on hand, which was um, thrillers, um, some stuff that uh, was a bit political, I think, from, I think, before when Singapore was independent. And things like um, 1984, George Orwell, which probably was not good for someone in primary school to read. Yeah, no, would you think that your ability or, you know, your flair towards the English language is a natural talent? Or... Ah, I get you. Okay. Um, I think a lot of it can be inculcated. So I believe you can get hold of reasonably smart kids and, and um, give them the materials and teach them how to write well and speak well and, and read the right things. And um, after a while, I think, I think uh, most of them get it. But for you yourself? Um, well, for me, you wrote the teenage textbook, and I just reread it again, oh. and was like, "Wow, this is actually, Thanks. you know, because back in the days when I was a teenager, I, yes. when I read it, I probably wouldn't appreciate You're as much." You're still as, a teenager. No. Uh, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you about that. Yeah. So when I was in national service, mm-hmm. um, at that time we were paid something like two hundred dollars a month or three hundred dollars a month, and and it's very hard to get by with that um, that type of salary. Um, allowance and I gave tuition, so I had to go to people's house, houses, and teach. Um, at first, I I taught the electric organ. That's very, I'm very bad. It's um, I learned a little bit of it and then I taught somebody. It was, it was a complete failure, right? So um, so I I started teaching English and lit- English literature. Oh man, it's it's really tough. Um, so I was making. $200 a month from the army, national service allowance. And then the weekends. weekends would be like $200 for um, tuition. And it didn't work. So I started writing articles instead. And I got paid 15 cents a word um, to write for magazines. So I have pseudonyms and I pretend to be um, a woman or a, a professional guy uh, working and, and having opinions about things. and getting paid every month, something like four or five hundred dollars a month. Um, one day this chap meets me, his name is Go Ek Kang, and he was a publisher. And he said, oh, I read some of your stuff. Would you like to write uh, a book? So I said, okay, um, why not, right? Um, and he says, okay, you've got to write a novel, which, which is uh, fiction. And I, I never write fiction. It's like really tough to imagine stuff. And I said, I, I have no idea. Uh, what to write about. He says, okay, first, um, um, you can write about something you know. And all I knew was the army. I just did national service. So um, that wasn't very useful because Michael Chung just wrote a book called Army Days. And, and his book defined national service for that time. And I didn't want to, to write the same thing that he was writing. And I wasn't working. So the only experience I could fall back on, which I could write on was junior college, the whole experience of um, being in a single-sex school and then going to junior college and meeting girls. Um, so I decided to write about that. 
And this was after the army or? When, when I was doing national service. Oh, wow. That's okay. right. Yes. And like, so like, we're looking at writing at night um, so, or just the weekend? So when I finished um, national service, that, that was the time I, I started writing. But then I had to go to university to study law. So I really began seriously writing during my uh, first year of university. Yes. Wait, so let's rewind back the, the question whereby the predisposition to the yes. English language. Yes. Um, natural talent or you think there's something, there's something that you so can't I think it's environmental. Okay. I think it's environmental. I think if you, get, if, if you want, we can do an experiment. We, we kidnap some kids from somewhere, uh, and third world country or somewhere. And then we, we put them in these like, giant vacuum rooms and one watches let's say, lots of kung fu movies. Right. And one watches lots of Bollywood. And one watches lots of um, um, British comedy or something. Eventually, I, I think they will develop according to their environment. So uh, the guy who watches uh, British comedy will end up speaking a certain way and having his thinking shaped that way. Mm. Bollywood, different, and kung fu person would be different. So. I knew there's a story whereby you're, so that when you move into Hua Chong, yes. then yes. the Chinese part yes. is something that you struggle upon. It's terrible. So the thing about Anglo-Chinese school, where I studied for 10 years, is that it's all Anglo and there's no Chinese in it. It's just, um, it's just an English-educated school. Everybody there spoke great English and thought in English. You can, I, I think your thought process is shaped by your language. Um, and, and um, nobody spent a lot of time on Chinese. That's wrong. I, I don't recommend it. I think that's a bad thing. Uh, but that's how we turned out. So at the end of secondary four, the government had a scheme. Governments always have these schemes where they change people's lives. And the government said, oh, um, Singapore needs more people to study the humanities. Right? Great. I, I agree. We still do. We still do. But what was the government's great idea? Did they say, okay, so everyone who's good in the humanities, we will give them scholarships to study humanities. Did they say that? No. They said, oh, we will get people who study science and give them the opportunity to study humanities. Then they're like, oh, what about the people who already are studying humanities? Wouldn't they be in a better position to take advantage of this opportunity? Because the government was investing in bringing the best teachers from overseas, setting up the best programs to make sure that we send students to the UK to study in Oxford and Cambridge and, and to do English language, politics, economics, and stuff like that. And um, they wanted to give this wonderful humanities opportunity to science students. Um, I know, and I was one. And why was I a science student? Um, it's because in Singapore, somehow parents have got this idea that if you study science, maths, or something, you're a lot smarter, you, you have better prospects, versus if you study arts or commerce or something. Right? It's completely wrong. All right? that's, that's a very bad way of thinking. Uh, you'll screw up your child's future. Um, but it comes about because our education system shows value by saying people who score well, we are going to stream them and, and we are going to put them in classes where it's science heavy or maths heavy. And people who don't do as well, well, we'll let them study something easier. Like what? Oh, like history, like geography, like economics. 
like literature. That's so easy, right? Compared to one plus one, so difficult. Anyway, because of that policy, I ended up doing science and maths. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, and after that, they like the Chinese. Yes. Huachong. <laughs> yes. So I went to Huachong because of the humanities yes. scholarship. This is a, a giant detour. And the whole interview is going to be like this, just to warn you. Okay. Right. I hope you have enough you, time. You have, we have, we have, I have. Yes. So um, I went to Huachong because I was told, and it was true, that they had very good teachers from the UK to teach us and prepare us to have a university course in, in England. But it was situated, this island of British education was situated in this huge Chinese junior college. So there were all these conflicts between the UK teachers and the administration of Hua Chong, uh, which was very different minded. Um, and I went there and I, I realized first off that for the first time in my life, I, um, I would have to make friends with people who um, didn't naturally have, uh, have English um, as, as a first language. So what I mean is they, they won't watch English movies, they won't listen to English music, they, uh, and they won't even talk to you in English. Um, because I'm Chinese by so race. So needless to say you have a hard time making friends yes. too? Because uh, of language? Well, I, no. I, 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 I made friends eventually um, because uh, we can get past those things. I, th I think, but uh, we, we've got to put people in that situation right. where, where you meet people from different backgrounds. Um, but I'm, my Chinese is still crap. But needless to say, you did manage to, to, to scrape through enough to get by. Yes, I failed uh, my Chinese the first time. And it, was, it was not, a, it was not a, a boring failure. It was a spectacular, world-class failure. The sort of failure that, like, Chinese teachers from other classes would come and just look at me and think, oh man, this is the guy who screwed our JC. So, um, yeah, it was a spectacular failure. Really bad. It's like is F9. That, is that like the A-level situation or J1? So, okay. So, um, I have to pass my Chinese to get into university mm -hmm. and I, I almost didn't. I had to take it many times. So people in Hua Chong, Chinese is like drinking water. So they, they do their higher Chinese or S paper, as we call it. Um, like three months before, three months went into a two-year course, they, they, they pass it and they get a, a distinction. And I'm like, no, I'm not even doing the higher Chinese. I'm just trying to scrape through. And I fail and I fail and I fail. But and you enough, you, you didn't like retain in a year though? No, no. Okay, no, well, that's... The, the system was a lot uh, kinder in those days. Um, I think because we, we departed from some of the thinking during Lee Kuan Yew's earlier bilingual policy era, where he equated being good at two languages to, to IQ, which is it's a completely different skill set. The, anyway, the upshot is that I had, I had friends who had to drop out of Hua Chong because they couldn't pass their Chinese. So they were good in everything else, but just because of one subject, um, they, they had to drop out. And I think that's a terrible shame. So you just managed to sort of just scrape through? Scrape through. Okay. Yes. By just memorizing like idioms and... You know, there are so many oh, techniques. Really? <laughs> correct, correct. 
So uh, you can memorize like the, the, the opening of any essay. And so you know, whatever essay topic that comes up, you will whack in your, your universal standard introduction, which is you know, in this life there are many issues and sometimes when we are confronted with situations that we have not experienced before, we can only apply the lessons that we have learned by our parents. And that takes up half the essay, then, then, the, beginning, then, then the, the ending bit, you can say that through this experience, I've, I've learned that I must trust in my elders and blah, blah. So that's universal ending. So it's like, it's like that iPhone 7 uh, kind of plug, the lightning plug to your headphones. You, you have that adapter and then you can use the adapter for anything. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. The middle bits were horrible. Uh -huh. yeah. And during then, was, it was the time also you went into debating. Oh, I like debating, yes. I, I, I did it a little bit in ACS uh -huh. um, and in Hua Chong. Uh, but I did most of it when I was in university. Um, and in Singapore, it used to be a lot more um, fun to debate. It's a lot more serious now. I, I, I judge some debate competitions. Our young people are very smart, they're very articulate, but um, there's a bit more to debating than that. So they need to know a lot of stuff and they need to be persuasive. Uh, being persuasive is, is different from being argumentative. Being argumentative is I say something and then you contradict me, I say something and contradict me, and then you show that everything I say is wrong. That's an argument. But you're not going to change my mind. So Donald Trump can say 10 things, and I can prove to you that everything that he says is a complete and utter lie. And on top of that, I can prove to you that he's a bad person. That's an argument. I may still not persuade you to vote against him or, or to vote for somebody else. So debate is all about persuasion, not argument. So it's something that we're, we're lacking, I think, when we look at our debate scene, which is a whole hour of discussion. No, I, 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 let me just dive in a little bit because I really love that topic yeah, of, yeah. of persuasion. Yes. Um, what do you, like, how, how can one be more persuasive? And ah, learn to right, be more right, persuasive? right, right. So the, the art of persuasion, which is something I have to do in court when I sue people um, as, as a litigator. The art of, art of persuasion is not about asking who's right who's wrong. Um, it's not even asking about the facts. It's about trying to figure out what people want. What people want. Everybody wants something. And once you know what that person wants, then you're able to, to understand his perspective. So some people want truth, some people want justice, some people want money, some people want sympathy, some people want security. Um, friendship, love, stuff like that. Um, everybody wants something. And when they, that affects the, their perspective of any issue. When you look at our, our national policies, or you even look at which football team people support, they come from a perspective of what they're lacking in themselves and what they want. So the first step in anything, even a relationship, especially a relationship, find out what the other person wants. And also, before you start, you've got to know what you want. And, and it takes a whole, life, a whole lifetime to figure out what you want. Isn't that the hardest part? It is the hardest part. Then the second layer is once you know what you want, never let people know what you want. It's like a poker. Like yes. It's not, it's not because you're deceitful or dishonest. It's just because once people know what you want, you are their tool. They can manipulate you. They can use that information against you. Or 
it just becomes very awkward if you want the wrong stuff. So if, if I want world peace or democracy or money, um, it's something only my closest friends uh, would know. Yeah, I, I don't know whether is this, is this like a professional uh, lawyer sort of uh, hazard, professional hazard. Oh, um, because I did spoke to uh, a few lawyers before, yes. and, and they seem to be a lot more guarded than the rest of the other it's profession. True. It is. Um, the legal profession is, is a profession where we have to weigh our words. Everything we say, we assume, has some significance. So we, we can't ever waste any words. Um, so that, that comes across as being guarded. It's hard even to do an interview, especially an interview on camera, because I have to remove some of the barriers that I have and be less self-conscious and actually give you information. Yeah, well, also, just to let you know, you have the final edits. Well... So, if, if anything... You heard that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we, I, I, that's how I encourage people to be more open. I, th I think that works. Hope because hopefully. By, by doing that, Brian, you actually you actually are knowing what the interview subject wants, which is sometimes that person um, wants privacy and, and sometimes he wants to, to protect his image. And so you, by saying that, you're actually addressing what he wants, so it makes him feel better. So back to, to debating, yeah, that, that's, that's the whole thing. The, the, the whole idea of persuading is, if I'm debating somebody, most of the time, I'm not trying to convince the person I'm debating with. I'm convincing a third party. So I have to figure out what the third party wants and then address that in my argument with, with, uh, with you. Ooh, yeah, okay. so many moving parts. Right, right, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it almost also seems that like the third party, uh, you're, you're playing a guessing game as well. Correct, correct. So uh, the first rule in in litigation is know your judge um, and in debate it's know your audience and in writing it's know your reader a lot of people say I write for myself and I mean to an extent that that's that's true um, but when you write for yourself um, what are you trying to achieve it's just some catharsis um, Gopal Bharatam uh, one of our earlier uh, fiction writers. He came to Hua Chong once and he lectured. He was a um, brain surgeon and, and he wrote fiction. And, and then I, at that time, was very interested in writing, so I spoke to him and he said, well, do you write anything? I said, yeah, but I, I don't really want to publish it. You know, it's very personal. Um, I just write it and I keep it in a drawer. Then he looked at me and he says, well, then that's just masturbation. And I still remember it. I thought, well, yeah, it seems quite pointless if I write something and keep it there. But then if I write something and I want other people to read it, why do I want people to read it? Well, obviously, I want them to enjoy themselves. And maybe I want them to, to listen to my message and agree with it. I want them to be persuaded. In which case, I'm not writing for myself anymore. I'm writing for another person. So if I'm going to write for another person, then I better know what's important to that person.
Actually, I mean, funny they mention it because yeah. I feel a lot of that when I reread the teenage textbook. Oh, thanks. And Tell me. Yeah, I feel that the, the way of how you write it, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the sense of the economy of words, uh, right. is yeah. put into such concise detail. Almost, I, 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 another author I remember, it's like Murakami writes very concisely uh, too, um, where he actually delivers a lot of information. And every paragraph is written in such a way where... Um, it have a little twist, yes. and it makes things interesting. Not by the page, but by the paragraph. Um, I, I, I'm not worthy to be compared to Murakami, but um, I appreciate your observations. When I was writing, I, I imagined myself talking to somebody who was constantly distracted. Um, so in those days, there were no handphones, but you can imagine trying to talk to somebody who is checking his messages all the time then you have to deliver information in a certain way so that he's interested to hear the ending of it. So yes, every paragraph should have either a lead-on to the next paragraph or should have a nice, satisfying conclusion to it. That's very funny because, in, I mean, almost today's day and age, it is more important. That skill yes, is actually. so much more important now yeah. than before. True. And I'm wondering where have you picked up that? Well, um, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's human nature. Um, nowadays, people um, tweet or they comment on Facebook. So there, there is an art to even writing um, uh, clickbait. If, if, if you are skillful enough, you can write the right clickbait. Uh, you won't believe what this guy did next. Or seven horrifying uh, uh, celebs that have gone through um, plastic surgery. Uh, the, the way you write it makes the person want to follow on and find out more. Where did you, I mean, did you form that thought or did, you, did someone, you know, what, what, what was that thought? Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, so I, th I think a lot of it comes from uh, reading the right things. Even, even someone like Charles Dickens, when Dickens was writing, he didn't sit down and say, I'm going to write a novel uh, from beginning to end. Uh, Dickens wrote for magazines. And so he would serialize his stories just as we watch TV episodes every week. So every week, he would write a chapter, a chapter, a chapter, a chapter. And um, then the challenge is, how do you write it for a newspaper so that people will finish this chapter and they say, oh man, this is really great. I want to read the next chapter and the next chapter. So he wrote it in a way where his chapters ended and you, you felt that something was resolved, but then you also wanted to know more about the follow-up. So like a good TV series. And that, the, the follow-up part is already built in, in yes, yes, into that's the right. story. That's right. You kind of like foreshadow it. Like, oh, this, this character is going to be interesting or this issue is going to come up. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, how, well, like, what would have influenced literary, like, yeah. literature heroes okay. that um, you have uh, back then? So my, my favorite author then and now is George Orwell. Uh, he wrote Animal Farm, which is my favorite book, and 1984, and many other things. Brave uh, That's Aldous Huxley, oh, okay. yeah, another great writer. Yeah. And, um, and in the whole area of futurism is quite interesting as well. So George Orwell used to say that good writing is like a window pane. It's like a piece of glass. You can't see it. You can't see good writing. You can only see what is behind it. So um, bad writing is, is like a dirty 
a dirty window pane. You, you, you can't even see what's outside. You're too distracted by the horribleness of the window itself. Um, so yes, George Orwell. How did he shape your writing? Um, George Orwell shaped my writing um, by, one, uh, writing about themes that concern all of us. Uh, a lot of people describe George Orwell as a political writer, which in one sense is true, but in another level, he's just writing about human relationships and human issues like, um, like power or, or love or fear. Um, and he also wrote a lot of essays about writing itself. So it's, it, it, it helped me when I read his essays to understand what good writing was. Yes. Did he have any resources? I mean, I would love to share. I mean, to uh, yes. A lot of uh, George Orwell stuff is out of copyright. <laughs> so um, you can get it. Uh, you can get it on the internet. Um, I, I can share some links with you later yeah. on. And um, I'm pretty sure it's, it's available for download. Um, 1984 and, and Animal Farm are his best works. And Animal Farm is the best because it's written in a very simple way about, about animals who have taken over a farm. Of course, if you, if you know history, then you will see the parallels between what he's saying and other real-life events. But you don't have to know all that. You just have to understand that there, is a, there's a, there are a group of characters and they had a common goal. They overthrew their oppressor and then they began fighting among themselves. And the way he tells his story makes, makes you sympathize with one group against another group. Um, I'm curious to know, yeah. what was your first professional piece of writing okay. after the mental masturbation you know, that oh. the advice was given to you? Uh, that was in, yeah, that was in, in Hua Chong. So after that, I went to national service and I started writing for this uh, two defunct magazines. One was called Man, M-A-N, and one was called Hot, H-O-T. And I wrote, I wrote this uh, series called Yuppie Talk. In those days, a yuppie was a young, upperly mobile professional. Um, so the magazines were targeted at people in their 20s um, who were professionals and who were high-income earners who, who drove flashy cars and who would buy the things that these magazines advertise. Uh, beautiful clothes, watches, stuff like that. Very materialistic. But I was nothing like that. I was not in my 20s. I was, I was not a professional and I didn't have disposable income. So I had to create a persona uh, to write about that lifestyle. And, and I wrote every month for these magazines. Did they approach you? Um, no, I approached them. I, I, I approached one of the editors and, and said, oh, uh, let me contribute. Uh, so he says, all right, you, you write something. And if it's good enough, we'll pay you 15 cents a word. So then I began contributing. And that was how they paid me. The, that was from the magazine called Man. And the other magazine, Hot H-O-T, is a woman's magazine. So um, I, I wrote an advice column there called, uh, I can't imagine what, I can't remember what it was called, but it was basically women uh, writing in uh, about women issues. And then this, uh, this man uh, giving totally, totally inappropriate answers um, to all their issues. Um, like this woman would write in and say, you know, I have to choose between A and B. A is handsome, rich and interesting, but he doesn't love me, and B uh, is, is poor and not very handsome, but he loves me totally, and I mean, which do I choose? And then 
I'll, I'll make some inappropriate reference. So what, what are your best pieces of uh, advice that you have given? Well, it's, it's probably uh, very, um, very offensive. Okay. Uh, but but the, 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 thing, the thing is that all these letters were made up. Because obviously, if you want to do an advice column, um, um, how do you get the questions that come in? Then you can reply, right? So the, the, uh, the big non-secret is that you have to write your own questions. And then, um, um, then you can supply answers. Then your answers look like they're tailor-made for the questions. So I, I, I then pretended to be somebody who, who was probably middle-aged and who had gone through a lot of relationships and therefore could speak from a position of experience. Um, then I went on to write for Go magazine. So that was the first, the advice column was? Yes, Yuppie's yes. uh, um, advice columns, the, the stuff like that. Then, and I would, you just sort of went in to the editor and hello and... Yeah, yeah, it was all hello stuff. You, uh, I think it's okay in, 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 in this sort of artsy, um, writey, photography thingy, you can, you can just go and say hello to people because you can show them your work and if it's useless or they don't like it, they'll just throw it away. I mean, I really want to bring it up because you, um, how many uh, writers and creatives these days just like, how do I get a start? And yes, yes. Said, right? Well, um, for my time, this was okay. Um, it's harder now because a lot of writing is on the internet. And uh, you, can tell, you can always tell good writing from uh, useless writing. And um, uh, the, 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 the problem is not finding the good writing. There's a lot of good writing around. The problem is trying to get paid for it, trying to make a living out of it. When before the internet, magazines actually made money. You could have you you could have newspapers with advertisements. You could have TV programs. You could you could play music and sell CDs, and you could write books and sell books. But with the internet, with with the sharing economy, I don't know how magazines will make money, and that translates into I don't know how writers will make money. Uh, because writers used to be paid by magazines. So now instead of writers, we have these things called bloggers. People, people who, who write and get paid by their advertisers. But it becomes a little bit seedy because you are reviewing products sometimes uh, because you are sponsored, um, you are asked to go on a, on a cruise or you go to a restaurant and you write reviews then it, it's not objective anymore. You're just, you're just a hired gun. And uh, you can write very well, but then is what you're writing of any use to anyone? Probably not. Because well, the money comes from the advertisers, and if yes. the advertisers doesn't go to the magazine, then, then, the, the, then the magazine wouldn't make money, then the magazine would close, and hence wouldn't be able to pay the writers. So the difference is that in a magazine, there, there is a layer called the editors, and they would have some level of discrimination. So they'll kind of prevent you from going overboard. And, and they'll have, there'll be quality control, and they'll still have, I hope they have ethics, um, at least some standards that they'll go, okay, we can write this, but this is too blatant, and so on. Imagine a world if we, if we made movies, not because of any artistic imperative, but just because the sponsor wants this car, and then the sponsor wants us to be in this location and wear this dress and this watch. Oops, I'm talking about James Bond. Because James Bond is all about product placement, product placement, product. 
So then the quality deteriorates. Mm. Mm. I'm going to dig into um, the formation of the style of your writing right. um, a little bit more. Yes. Um, so how did that develop and you know, grew into what it is now, your style? So the secret is three words, short attention span. You got to respect your reader's time. If in the old days, you can write a 300-page novel and then your reader can sit in the corner and, and just plow through it, tiny font size, solid paragraph sentences that are more than 50 words long and um, not going anywhere. But res respect your readers. As Singaporean, I, I write for Singaporeans because uh, this is my country and I'm a Singaporean. So when I started writing, I wanted to appeal to Singaporeans. At that time, the 1980s, there weren't many novels set in Singapore for Singaporeans. And I felt, uh, I wanted young people to have a subject matter that they could relate to, have um, a voice that sounded familiar to them, and locations that, that re recalled where they were living. Um, so I had to respect my reader. Then I, I realized straight away that the sort of people who would be reading this would also need to be stimulated by very good writing. In other words, um, don't use long words. Um, always get to the point and um, let your reader figure stuff out. Um, so you've, you've got to show a clear picture, but you've also got to let the reader work stuff out and form his own opinions. It, it's more fun that way. So if, um, why do we like watching murder mysteries? Because we like to, to, to think that we can guess who the murderer is. We can guess who done it. Imagine if you watch a murder mystery where they told you straight off, okay, spoiler alert, this guy did it. It's like, oh, then why am I watching this? That's why we go and watch movies. It's not because we are curious to know what happens at the end. We can just read a, a movie review or, or, or read the spoilers and we'll know what happened. But we want to have the whole experience of following something through and exercising our mind and reaching a conclusion. So that is sort of like what, I mean, summarizes what your writing uh, style have developed into. Yes. Um, how did that shape over time? Ah, okay, great. Yeah. So before when, when it start, how was it like? And yes. then like the process of it becoming what it is. I'm probably a better writer now than in the 1980s. So when I was starting, I, I, I made a lot of mistakes and um, I was still learning how, how to write stuff. And um, one of the things I, I learned over time is that it's shorter is better. Shorter, shorter, shorter. Um, have more complexity, but get to the point faster. So in real, in real terms, that means every time you finish writing something, go back and see what you can remove without changing the meaning. Remove, remove, remove. Your teenage textbook yes. uh, that you wrote, yes. um, how many drafts and what, what, what was, oh, okay. yeah. So it took about three months to write. Um, so I would finish school or, or come back home and then I'd have dinner and from around 7 p.m., to about uh, 10 p.m., I would be writing, and I'll be writing on this. Uh, it's called an 
Amiga computer. I don't know whether you remember Commodore. It's it's a very old uh, type of computer, with a with a giant screen, and um, then I would I would so finish. Oh man, it was way before. Oh, it was okay. like powered by rubber bands. It's really old stuff. Wow. And and then I would sit there in the hall of of um, our place, and then I would be tapping away uh, for about two to three hours. So I I would have to be disciplined to say, okay, I've got to do three four hundred pages, uh, two uh, every day, and maybe more on weekends. And I can't go backwards. I can only go forwards. Because the thing about writing is if you, if you go backwards, if you start saying, I wonder what I wrote yesterday, let me improve it, improve it, you'll be still stuck on chapter one, page one. So you just have to bash through. That took uh, like the three months, of, three months of nights. Yes, three months of nights, correct, correct. Where I didn't have much else. Uh, well, I, I wasn't doing my homework in, in law school and I wasn't doing much else. Yeah. Yes. And, the, and the edits after? Was that in the three months? Uh, no. So then um, I finished it and then I gave it to my publisher who was also my editor and um, I also gave it to uh, my wife who was my girlfriend then and, and I got their opinions and what they wanted to change, suggestions. Okay. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, the payment function. Oh right yeah, yeah, now, sure. As yeah. writers, and maybe yes. that was sort of segue into law. Um, okay. Okay. So for everybody who writes a novel, yeah. um, I would recommend them to sign a contract where they get either a payment, a fixed amount, for their work, or they get a royalty. A royalty means for every book that they sell. Um, the, the author receives a percentage, usually 10%. So let's say a book sells for $10, then the writer may get a royalty of a dollar per book. And um, publishers, when they publish, they usually publish in something called a print run, which is about 2,000 to 5,000 copies. And if they sell out all their books, then they would uh, reprint, correct. So if someone has a print run of 2000 the author would make about $2,000, $1 per book, mm. uh, assuming the book's $10. Actually, to be honest, if you, if you talk about if it's just 2000 right? Yeah. And then... Um, it's really tough. Yeah, correct. Because how many, how many months of work was, was that for? Uh, yeah, it was like three to four months of work. But look, um, the, idea, the idea of writing... In, in Singapore, especially, is, is very pure. Very few people write because they want to be multi-millionaires. Um, it's more like a J.K. Rowling situation, or maybe even purer than that. You have a day job, but you want to write because there's something burning inside you that you need to release, and you want to express yourself. And it's enough that someone likes what you wrote and is willing to publish it into a physical book, that's enough of the, an achievement. A uh, few, few people write for money. I, I even see when people write, I can, we can tell when people are writing for themselves, uh, for an artistic purpose or for money. You can tell. Yeah, and also to add on to that point, because 
it's so hard to find good writing just because of the economy doesn't support it. Oh, no, that's a very good argument. And the question is, some, art, some artists, and I include not just writers, but any type of artist, some artists feel that their art is, is motivated by a higher purpose. And when we introduce the money element into it, that really ruins everything. So um, for those sorts of people, you can be a poet, you can be a musician, you, you just do it because it's, it's beautiful. Um, and so whether you, you have good quality work, whether you get paid or not, that, that's the theory. Um, in, in practice though, writing novels, which is different from writing poetry, writing novels requires a lot of time. It, it's a real commitment of a few months. I, I was involved in the epigram um, literature award where, where they gave they, they, they are every year giving a fantastic cash award for the best novel um, written in the English language in Singapore and, and they have got very good entries a, a lot of the, the books that came through that I helped to judge I was very impressed with but they were obviously the work of years somebody would have a full-time job and then come home and just be committed enough to spend three or four hours just working to, to, sh to have this novel um, take place. And I, I, don't know whether, I don't know whether paying people for it makes it better or, or worse. Where do we find really good literature? Mm, in the UK, in, in the US, uh, people write very well. Sometimes you, you think of Murakami or you think of uh, some of the British writers when they write or, or, the, or the American writers when they write. Are they writing because they want to get a big bestseller? Probably not. I, I don't get a sense that, that that is uppermost in their minds. So how do they survive? Then? Uh, beats me. We can't give writers grants and say, for two years, you don't have to work. I'll pay you a salary every month. At the end of two years, you must produce a book. That's kind of weird, right? That, that really is not how we see writing. But how else can we do it? Put them on welfare? We, we can't even guarantee a, a good writer will produce a good book. Because good writers sometimes produce crap books. Hmm. I think there are uh, artists, uh, what's that? Like, uh, scholarship or something where you stay oh, ah, yes, so, so a writer in residence, yeah, in residence kind of thing yes, yes. Yeah, I don't know enough about that yeah. to talk about it it seems quite pressurizing though mm. um, if you put someone in, a, in, a, in a, a room and say okay for the next two years we're going to pay you but at the end of it you're going to come up with a, with a book that's but on your point of view, you write really fast then. Like, you know, you wrote it in four months. Okay, so that was, that so happened, it so happened that I, I had the time to do that. And um, I, was, I was in law school, which means that um, I could skip classes and skip assignments and generally um, uh, not attend to my schoolwork. So I had to pay a price for it. So now segue into yes. law. Right, right, right. Why, I mean, like, what, what were your motivations when you were choosing law as a career? Oh. And what were the alternative to? Okay, so there, there really wasn't much of an alternative. Oh. Yeah, I, I, like, I like being a lawyer. 
I like the part where we meet people uh, and then we help people and get things done. And I also like the, the drama of it when you have conflict and you, you go somewhere and have it resolved. You, you have it publicly trashed out and there is a winner and a loser. I like, I like that whole process. Did you know about that when you were choosing law? Yes, because strangely enough, uh, law, the legal profession, is one of the most uh, featured professions in, on TV, in movies, and books. Um, it's like doctors. You kind of know what a doctor does. Oh, somebody got injured. Uh, they rush them to emergency, and then this doctor comes up. He wears this green stuff, and then he cuts you open, and then he, he, he fixes you. So as a kid, you can understand, okay, that's what a doctor does. This is what a fireman does. Uh, this is what a reporter does. Um, this is what a lawyer does. So it's a very easy job to understand. Um, well, the reason I ask is also because, like, do you feel that there's a disparity between the, ah, the marketing right, of right. law yeah. on TV shows, which, yes. I mean, maybe now with suits back then, it was Boston Legal, yes. uh, and the law industry. And yes, hence, yes. yeah. There is a bit of a disconnect if you look at Singapore law versus the, the American legal dramas that you see on TV, which is why um, a few years back, I, I, I helped to conceptualize this TV series called The Pupil, which is available on YouTube. Um, and it was a two-season thing which showed how a Singapore law practice works. Uh, a, a young trainee lawyer called The Pupil joins a Singapore law firm um, and, and meets two lawyers. One is Adrian Pang and one is Janice Koh. Um, yeah. I know, yeah, all lawyers look like Adrian Pang, by the way, just very cool. Um, and then she, she has Singaporean uh, cases. For example, there was a case about national service. There was this a foreigner who um, was arrested at Changi Airport because um, he was living in Singapore and he didn't do national service. And his argument is, yes, but I'm not a Singaporean citizen. Why should I do national service? Uh, so there's a, a, a Singaporean question. There was another one where his parents sued um, the school, because the school didn't, didn't admit his child, even though as a parent he contributed a lot of time and effort uh, to do all this ECA. And so he accused the school of, of discriminating against him because he was Indian, he was, um, uh, and the school principal was Chinese, and, and stuff like that, very uh, Singaporean themes. Mm. So I helped to try and bridge that gap. Yeah, with the pupil. Yes, it's, it's available on YouTube. Yeah, please watch it. We'll link it. Oh, great. Yeah, brilliant. brilliant. Yes, yes. I, I really like it. So I, 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 I also write sometimes about what law is like, practicing law, what the function is, the role in society, because I do want the public to understand what the legal system is all about, why it's there to help them and, and solve problems. Before we go full in on, on lawyering, I just remember yes. this question that someone wrote to me, which re okay. it's actually my question too. Okay. Uh, I noticed that you have a lot of like social cultural reference and you know uh, observations yes. sprinkled yes. into your writing. Right. Uh, is that something you take note of it every day, or you know it just comes to you when you're writing? I, uh, second one, it just comes to me when I'm writing. That's because I think uh, writing is a lot like having a conversation. When you talk to your friends, you do reference whatever happens to you. So, um, 
if you like football, then when you talk about something, you'll have a football reference. Like, oh, this reminds me of the time when this manager uh, took charge of this team or something. Or this reminds me of the latest Tom Hanks movie. Or this reminds me of the, you know, this, the lyrics of this song where they said blah, blah, blah. And I think it's very natural. And if you, if you read Shakespeare, Shakespeare did it too. And most writers do it because they, they have to provide a context for their audience. So this is all about you know, understand your audience, understand your readers, find out what they want. So uh, it, it, it is natural. I, I think there, there was a long debate a long time ago about writing in Singlish. There were two schools of thought. One is that we should write with Singapore social cultural references and Singlish because this is who we are. And the other school of thought is that, no, we should write internationally because we want our literature to be available on a world stage. And if we confine ourselves to Singapore references and Singlish, then we would have uh, a very limited readership. So there's this debate going on. It's been going on forever. Government is part of, of that debate. They are kind of not in favor of Singlish. Um, well, I'm on the speak good English movement, which means that I, I push for people to learn how to use English properly, yeah. a standard English. And I also see a, a very big role for Singlish. But I worry that, that there are a lot of Singaporeans who use Singlish when they think they're using English. Then they get into problems and then they can't express themselves well and they, um, that's not a good thing. So I, I, I want to preserve Singlish and I also want people to understand that it's not English. I read your article on Straits Time uh, oh. on July uh, oh, on the lawyer. Yes, yes. I really should link it. It's a great article. Oh, thanks. Yes. Um, the hired friend. Yes. Yes. To what degree of truthness is there in? I only write hundred percent truth. I'm a very truthful person. <laughs> a lawyer is is your friend that you can hire. So it's sometimes you know we don't. I think I have about three friends. After fifty years of living. I guess I have about three friends. And um, I know people who have a few more friends, and I know people who have zero friends. Um, those people uh, who say they have a thousand friends or a hundred friends uh, on Facebook, um, that, those are not real friends. Uh, f friends. Friends are people who, it's not about feeling, it's about what they do for you. Uh, how they care for you, how they protect you, how they stand by you and give you support and make you happy. Uh, so if we have one friend in our lives, it's, we're very, very, very lucky. And I'm lucky because I have more than one friend. But sometimes we, we don't, there are people who don't have friends or don't have enough friends and then they get into trouble. Then they need friends. This is where lawyers come in. Right. You can hire a friend. It's, it's good, isn't it? Because... Um, it's so hard to go and out and meet a friend and then get common interests and build up some relationship and, and, and uh, have the level of trust that you need from a friend. You, you, may, you may have grown up your whole life surrounded by idiots or very unfriendly people. Friends, your bad luck. Yeah. So fortunately, we have the legal profession. Also, you painted the legal profession yes. as a, a, a quite depressing uh, oh. If I were a lawyer and I would look at it, I was like, okay, I might not want to. <laughs> you think so? 
be a lawyer. So, I well, mean, was it to deter the wannabe lawyers to not be lawyers then? I didn't see it that way. It's a service industry. Okay. Um, we, every service industry, let's think of nursing. I mean, if, if I've often wondered, this is a very tough profession, nursing. I've often wondered, so you're a nurse, what do you do? You do a lot of tough stuff. I mean, you're around sick people all the time. You've got to be very positive. You clean up after them. You get dominated by doctors. Not a good thing. And it's not like your salary is damn good either. Plus, you've got to wear these uh, freaky nurse outfits. Um, invites a lot of improper comments. But, but glossing over that. Um, but people do it. And I think when you talk about Nursing is not to turn people off, it's actually to praise them. To say, well, it's kind of a tough job that you do. So most service industries, uh, from being wait staff, being a stewardess, um, it's all about subordinating your needs to that of somebody else. Actually, I think it's a very high uh, human calling for us. Because also... I mean, you spoke about the Manalians, and I do have a yes. few. I do want to talk, tell you, so I was a, I'm a wedding planner by day. Hey, that's cool. Yeah, and that's uh, a happy job. yeah, it is. Yeah. So I, I, one day I received a beautiful hand-type uh, yeah. uh, applicant, job applicant uh, over to me, and then nice. I, I, I read there was, oh, she was a lawyer. So I have no, no, no clue about, you know, what is it like to be a lawyer. So I went to approach my lawyer friends and, and see what does all this mean. A lawyer applied to be a wedding planner. Correct. Wow. Correct, correct. Uh, and and I was I was surprised of well one the working hours, and then two uh, the uh, the amount of salary they are getting. Ah, that's <laughs> another laughable. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so so I mean, one one I would say it's more probably one of the best paid profession, uh, in the professional industry. Um, I I worked it out before. That's yeah? not true. That's uh, not true. If you go by hours, uh, uh, the manager of a McDonald's makes more than um, uh, an associate in a law firm. If you go by hourly rate. But I mean, if we look at the associate, then we look at senior, and then we look at uh, salary partner, then that, then that is where it comes, the difference comes, right? If you, yeah, if you look at it that way, though, then you might... There, there are many more ways to make money than being a lawyer. And, and right off starting, it, if you can choose to go to law school or choose to go to just have a general arts degree and then go and work and say, I only want to work this number of hours a week, uh, which pays better? Be a manager at McDonald's. Be a fast food restaurant uh, manager rather than an associate. Yeah. So coming back to the to the story, which is uh, I, I tell her, you know, like I am not being I'm not able to pay you as much as what what you're getting. Yeah. So is, is this you know like I mean I'm telling the truth and and, and, yeah. and so. Um, I was also surprised by the working hours that you know one need to put in, and also I then I was doing my research on Drew and Napier where you were at before. Right. Yes, uh, my old firm. Yeah, correct. Yes. He, my friend was like commending. I was like, oh, he must have worked really hard. <laughs> it's true. Um, we just paint a just paint a day like so. Like, what was that working hours? So um, I I think people uh, work hard in many many jobs, and the reason people work hard or not. Is, is not because of money. Um, there, are, there are very lazy lawyers, and even though they're paid very well, they're lazy, uh, versus they're very hardworking people in other jobs who are not paid as well. And you, you can't tell someone to work harder just as you can't tell someone don't work so hard. A, a person works as hard 
as he wants to. Uh, it's all about the passion. What motivates inside. you? Oh, uh, so I meet a lot of people in my, in my line of work and they, they have problems. And I like to, to uh, solve their problems. I, I don't always solve their problems, but I just like to meet people. <laughs> is, uh, do you think that the work-life balance uh, is uh, over-romanticization? So, this is, this is a, a complete myth, this idea of work-life balance. And I, w I want to say to you that um, work-life balance is, is an invention of the 21st century that never existed before. Because think about it, when, when um, early man started um, cultivating land and, and became from hunter-gatherers, we became farmers, there was no such thing as having a weekend or having days off. There was no such thing as work-life balance. You worked every day. You worked every day, you woke up early, you, you had to tend to your farm or you could go out and practice your craft. And if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And then um, in, in, I think only recently in the 20th century, we began to have this idea that we could work in mass production, we could work in factories, and then we would have days where we work and days that we don't work. Then we have something called weekends, we have something called vacations. But that's a, a fairly recent phenomenon. And then we began to have ideas that uh, parents have to be home uh, and have dinner with their kids. This is actually quite new if you think about um, Asian society. It, it didn't always work that way. I don't know. If you look at Asian society, this idea of having vacations, holidays, I'm not sure... I'm pretty sure that um, it's a Western concept. Anyway, the point really is um, work is part of life. It's not the anti-life. If you want to balance work and life, it means you're suggesting that when you work, you don't have a life. But a lot of our life exists within our work, just as what you do. Um, this, this forms part of your identity. This, you, don't, you don't say... Uh, to yourself, oh, I, I'm dying to finish this interview and get on with what I really want to do. This is what you want to do. This is your life. So there isn't a balance. This, this, uh, there, uh, work, life, same thing. How about the notion of work and break? Uh, because yes. then you work really long hours. I mean, yes. more than just long hours, it's also yes. mentally yes. uh, taxing. So. Sure. Good point. Yeah. Um, there's, there's times we spend in the office, uh, for me, uh, doing stuff, writing stuff, talking to people, working stuff out. And then there's times I spend away from the office where I, I talk to my friends or I watch TV or I sleep or I exercise. Um, but it's, it's, it's a 24-hour it's a job in the sense that I'm always thinking about my work. So this is different from being um, in a factory. And this is where the concept of work-life balance comes from. I think uh, if you work on a production line, you work from uh, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a one-hour break. Work, 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 work. You finish your work at a factory, you, you take off your overalls, and then you go home. You don't do any more work. It's, it's gone. The work is in the factory. But those are people who work with their hands or with their bodies. And you work with your brain, and I work with my brain. So when it comes to 5 o'clock, we don't say, I'll stop thinking about 
I'll stop thinking about what's occupied me for eight hours a day. You don't say, I'll stop thinking about planning, planning tomorrow's events. I just stop. I, I can switch it off. No, it carries on. It dwells in your mind. So we don't have a break from brain work. Interesting enough. So since you mentioned that, maybe what are the what are some of the most common personality or perspective mismatch with menaliums? Well, you just said one, right? Which All is right. The, the the myth of the work life balance oh, in yeah. yeah the law industry and the millennium lawyers. And I, I ask this also because I have many friends who who left, who became creative. Uh, they, yes. they they shoot photos and but yes. they end up you know with this. Um, four years or five years of intensive training to, with the law. I mean, not, not to say that right. it, it, the, the training is gone, and you yeah. know, um, um, but because um, it, it is a lot of time that's being invested. And if it's something that, you know, they could know from the start that they don't, maybe would not like to be working 24-7, thinking yeah. about the, the subject, then we can save that time yeah. to be, make them be more productive. So, so let me uh, say something to defend millennials. And, and that's this. You know, every generation that goes through being teenagers and 20-something, they get condemned by the older generation, right? Every generation. From the post-war baby boomers, when they came out. When they were growing up, they were teenagers in the 50s. They, they were condemned by their elders who went through the war. And now, you don't know anything. Of course, though that, that Second World War generation were condemned by their parents because their parents said, oh, we were migrants. We came from China to come to Singapore. You don't know, you don't know how good your life is. And then the, the baby boomers uh, grew up post-war, and then they had babies yeah, during independence times. And then they told their kids, wow, you guys don't know how lucky you were. Now you're born in modern Singapore, uh, like my parents used to say. You don't have to carry water. Um, we had to carry water all the time. We had to kill chickens. And it was a big deal. Apparently, the water-carrying duties were, were endless. So we were told over and over again how lucky we are. And then we do the same to our young people. When they're 20, ah, man, you'll have it so good. You've got internet. You've, you've, you, you get all the information on the world on your t- fingertips. You can study anything you like. I'm giving you all these opportunities. You have tuition. Uh, you, get, you get breaks and stuff. Not like my time. And then we denigrate the younger generation because... That is what human beings like to do. And when this younger generation starts working, they get to their middle age, they get families, and then they say, okay, now's our chance to dis- differentiate ourselves from the next generation. So there's generation X, generation Y, generation Z, and the millennials. And each generation wants to be superior to the next generation. So what do we do with the millennials? Or we say, well, they're very entitled. What does that mean? Oh, well, you know, they feel that the world should be a certain way. And I'm like, yes, that's true. But when you were young, you also had ideals. You also had beliefs um, and aspirations. Because when you're young, you're optimistic. You, can, you want change. And, and every generation goes through that. In the 70s, the people who protested the Vietnam War were, were 20-somethings, were teenagers. So they were the ones who showed the conscience of the world and said, you should do things like this. Um, it's always the young people that 
have the biggest hearts. And then as they get older, we start to work on them and we start to disillusion them and, and we start to tell them, it's not as good as you think it is. The world will never change and just, just be like us and, and just keep your dreams small. So for the millennials, we are now giving it to them. The whole world is, we've given them a label, that's the first step, millennial. Second, we, we pick on stuff that we used to do, but we say it's them. Oh, you people, um, you, you work very hard, but you like to take a break and you like to change your careers. Excuse me, this is not the first generation that changes careers. Young people change their careers. And young people are always searching for something. And they will settle down. And, and it will be different from you. That's the whole point of being young. So the, what we should do is we should appreciate and treasure what they have at this moment when they're young and they haven't been whacked by the world, when they still have their eyes open and they can still ask questions, we should treasure that and say, okay, tell us what you think. We've been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. The world isn't that great. It's not perfect. So you, you tell me your ideas and, and we should listen to them instead of making fun of them. But we'll keep doing that. And the, the millennials will do that to another generation too. Um, so come back to the question whereby do you find that there are any what are, you know like a personality mismatch yes, or yes. what what are some, most of the common ones that you know like that you observe and maybe you think okay this uh, person you know is not cut out for this the uh, young people that work for me uh, work with me nowadays um, so I'm 50 yeah. and I have associates in their 20s 30s and they're very hardworking yeah. they're they're driven by passion. That means they have to believe that what they're doing is morally right. So in, in law, it means you have to believe that your client is, is not a crook, um, is, is, is really truthful and has integrity. And if my associates don't feel that way, I always use them as a barometer. I, I use them as, as a way of reminding me whether I'm working for the good guys or the bad guys. So they, they have, a good, they have a, a good indicator of whether I'm working for good guys or bad guys. And they'll tell me. Um, they work very hard, but they also need to... Um, they like to learn stuff. So they, they want to know stuff. They, they're interested in stuff. Um, and so I have to... I have to constantly to keep, yes, I have to impart, correct, that's perfect word. Um, and I recommend that for people of my generation, if, if we have younger people working for us, we've got to keep transferring the knowledge and say, hey, you know, in this situation, uh, I remember we did it this way, so this, this, this is some information that you can use and, and build on it. Um, conversely, then, yes. what would be like some good personality types or What's your person that is coming into the law industry oh, uh, be excited about? Or, you know, like, that's the reason. That should be the reason why you are here. Okay, you can't hate people. If you, if you work in, in law, yeah, you've you got to be a sympathetic person or empathetic person. It means that... Um, so in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the, the novel by Harper Lee, um, Scout... Uh, the main uh, uh, protagonist talks to her father, Atticus Finch, who is a lawyer, an uh, inspirational uh, character. 
and she's she's talking about how um, there's a race there, there's a, a race conflict in her town, and her father says you you can't really judge uh, someone until you get into his shoes, and what he means is you have to see things from people's perspective. You have to have empathy. That's the modern word for it. So to be a good lawyer, empathize. you have to empathize. You, you, you have to empathize with a, with a person at his uh, lowest uh, psychological ebb, maybe at a time where he's made a lot of mistakes or he's, he's had very bad misfortune. And you have to figure out how he got there. And then you have to explain that to somebody else. You have to explain that to a judge. And also being persuasive. Yes, that's right. That's where it comes the, in. You know, it, the economy of word, asking good questions. Yeah, you have to know how to use this big tool called the English language. And even thinking clearly too. That's right. That's right. And thinking clearly is not so theoretical. It's thinking clearly about very practical things. Like, why did this person do this thing? Why did this person uh, make friends with another person or ha have conflict with another person? Um, and you have to understand your client uh, better than maybe he under understands himself. Now you are in uh, IT and IP, yes, which is sort of like the startup scene. Yeah, a little bit. Um, so many lawyers come to me and saying that the client always come to them at the wrong time. They should have come earlier. That's very true. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe just. Let's start on that and you know like what are some things that they should come earlier of okay. and maybe let's sort of tell them that. Well, um, straight off, people don't like to see lawyers, right? Don't like to see dentists. Um, you see a dentist for some people only when you have a problem and then the dentist says, oh, I should come earlier. And if you go and see the dentist earlier, the dentist will submit you to a humiliating examination and then comment on all your failings yeah. in dental hygiene and tell you to do stuff like floss. Um, very uh, unappetizing. So you go and see a lawyer, you have a business idea, right? I'm going to start a new business. I'm going to do this, do that, do this, do that. And then somebody says, okay, but before you do that, let's go and see a lawyer. It's like pouring cold water on you. Go there, oh, what? What now? Then the lawyer says, oh, okay, you better have this contract and this thing, and you have to make a decision on this, and make sure you about you sign this, you sign. and then you're like, oh, come on, man. I've got a great idea. I'm going to start up. This is going to change the world. I don't, I didn't, I don't remember Steve Jobs sitting in, in a lawyer's office for 10 hours a day. Man, he was out there. He was inventing iPads and iPods. What is, I'm wasting my time. Come on. I've got these great ideas. I've got a group of people I can trust, and we're just going to go with it. Okay, we'll solve the problem when it happens. All right? We're not going to pre-solve anything and like, like spend a million bucks on you. Well, and I can understand that feeling, right? When you, when you want to do something, you just go and do it. And the, the lawyer sounds like a, like a kiasu kind of wet blanket, always telling you the downside and what terrible things could happen. You, you don't need that, right? The whole world is telling you why your, your startup's going to fail. You don't need to hire somebody to tell you that. So when would be the time then? From the beginning, but people are not going to do that. All right, they will not do it. I can predict, predict it. Ninety-nine percent of the time, people don't go and see their dentist, yeah. and they don't go and see okay, their, their, their just, lawyer. Let's just you know, like put on that fact that people don't. Right. Then, let's make it easy for them, because well, lawyers are expensive. Firstly, yeah. 
<laughs> so, do you think that there is like any cheat sheets they could? Sure, sure, sure. Right, you don't sure. have a bigger contract where you find that this repository. Yeah. Uh, they could at least have some form of defense without uh, paying the upfront. Because the main thing was other than the cold blanket is the cost. One of the best lawyers is called Google, and if if you're gonna do something, and for some reason you don't want to see a professional, you want to do it yourself, then at least do your research. Um, if you if you want to start a company with somebody else, then you need to have a contract and you need to spell out what your partner is going to do, what you're going to do, and, and things going forward. And a lot of good things on the internet that you can find if, if you want to do it. But you know what? You know what costs more? Doing it yourself or getting a trained professional to do it. Which costs more? It's doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. Because you don't even know where to look. You're going to waste a lot of your time. And when you're a startup, the one most valuable thing that you want is not capital. All right, you can get capital, you can raise funds, you can find people to invest. What you don't have is time, is your mind share. You want to devote 100% of your mind to launching your startup. You're not going to spend 50% of time solving legal problems that some guy has done before. You can do it in 10 minutes. So why go and do another person's job? We spent four years training for this, plus another four or five years just learning the ropes so that we can get to a point where we can tell you how to do it. Why do you want to reinvent the wheel? I think, well, also the cost, the cost side being startup where there's no capital, right? It's a trade-off between time and capital. So which one's more important for you? The other thing is it's a preventive measure um, that if you if you see the right lawyer at the beginning, you will not have problems down the road. But nobody's going to tell you that because nobody's going to sit around and say, oh, uh, I avoided having this multi-million dollar legal problem yeah. because I saw this. No, because they didn't have the problem. What would be the minimal, you think? Uh, I mean, in terms of just cost. Oh, right. If you want to start up, then you should have a contract between you and your shareholders to understand who is supposed to do what, who is supposed to contribute what. And then if, it depends on what sort of business areas you're in, but you've got to make sure you get the right licenses and permits and you hire the right people and, and you avoid doing stuff that you're not supposed to do. Yeah, I think a big part of it is ambiguity of spending a lot of money yes. and them not knowing what is this a lot of money. Is it 10000 yes. Is it 1000 yes. Or is it $500? Yes. So you can get a quote from a lawyer. Uh, like different dentists charge different amounts. Um, so you can talk to a lawyer yeah. and say, hey, what's the... I'll, and most lawyers will be able to tell you, okay, you know, normally when you, you start a new company, you've got to look at this, it costs this much, this, this, this. Okay, I think that that's a really good advice. I think yeah. just going into for a quote. Yeah, just get a quote. Yeah, even then, then you will learn what you need. <laughs> Yes. Then if you want to do it yourself, then you, you'll be able to know what you are looking for. Yes. So you, you've got to treat your lawyer as your, uh, your collaborator and your partner because um, he's going to... First, you have to let him understand your business. And if he doesn't get your business, that should re ring alarm bells because lawyers know a lot. Um, they, they've seen a lot of businesses. So if, if your startup sounds funny to your lawyer, it's weird. You, sh you should think, rethink it. And second, you, 
you can tell him what your plans are and he can probably tell you what's doable and what's not doable because he would have seen. Oh yeah, yes, I know a client who went into Vietnam and this, 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 or he encountered this problem, so you better watch out for it. So your lawyer is, is like a collaborator. He, he also has a stake in your company and he also has experiences to bring to the table. But even then, I also heard of uh, cases where, where law firms actually become a stakeholder. Yes, yes. And that happens too. Uh, yes, it's not common, yeah. but it happens. If the lawyer is really excited by your business. Uh, the relevance or the overlaps that you see in the writing and right. in the legal. Uh, okay, so uh, nowadays, a lot of legal practice involves writing. And in the old days, you will see lawyers going to court, talking a lot, and um, winning because of their beautiful voices and, and, and the way they, they can speak and, and grip you. But nowadays, it's all done through writing. So the best, the best lawyers are very careful how they write because they're writing for people who are very busy, who also have a short attention span, who are very intelligent, and they have to communicate things in a very persuasive way. Then the differences or what I see is one is creative yes. and the other is logical. Yes. Right? Yes. How do you balance that or do you even balance at all? It's, a, it's an interesting um, dichotomy. If, if you think that creative writing is, is divergent, if you think that, that way, yes, then it's different. But not all uh, creative writing is divergent. Um, some creative writing is writing to make an argument or writing to persuade you. So back to my favorite novel, Animal Farm. George Orwell wrote Animal Farm because he wanted to make an argument that the, the, Soviet, the revolution in the Soviet Union was a failure and was nothing more than a repeat um, rather than uh, a demolition or removal of the capitalist system. It was just re replacing one elite with another elite. So the class structure was still in place. Okay, so George Orwell wanted to make this argument. You can say it's a lawyer's argument or it's a historian's argument, but it's still an argument. Yeah. It's not creative in, in the traditional sense. It's, um, it's scientific, logical, historical. But he used creativity to get to that point. So I think lawyers uh, do it that way too, that they have a point and they want to find a way to, to get you to understand the point. In terms of time management, do you have any advice for that on how to segregate this oh. to... I'm, I'm really bad at time management. Um, I, I'm, I think, uh, just to generalize, uh, we probably need more training in school about time management. In school, we learn a lot of useless subjects in school and school is an example of very very bad time management the amount of time that we spend teaching kids useless stuff is amazing so in school we studied things like differentiation um, we studied things like quadratic equations we studied physics to a very high level or chemistry totally useless all right you don't need to know all that stuff what we need to study in school stuff like time management we need to study we need to study financial management how to manage our own lives so that we get, don't get into debt, we don't get into financial trouble, so that we can invest and 
have enough money to retire. We, we have to teach kids that. We have to teach kids how to relate to other people, to have social skills, to, to be courteous, to be civic-minded. Uh, we have to teach uh, kids to become good citizens, just to be able to introduce themselves to other people. And we, we have to teach kids about things like love and human reproduction and um, hygiene and food and health and how not to eat the wrong things and get really fat um, and ruin their lives. We're not teaching our kids any of that. All the important stuff, we're letting them learn on their own behind the, behind the garden shed. And, and we're, teaching, we're spending useless time teaching them quadratic equations. Uh, I just want to respect your time. Oh, also, okay. yeah. yeah. Sure, sure. I think we're okay. Oh, we're okay? Okay. Yeah. I, uh, let's do a quick turn yes. and, and move into the, the thing that we started wanting to talk about. Okay. Politics, just ask a few questions of that. Sure. Um, I saw your speech on um, the, the one that you did for the interpretation of the story on, for George Orwell. Yes, yes. Um, correct. Yeah. Uh, so much to ask, but yeah. maybe... Is it on YouTube? Is it yes, it is on YouTube. Oh, cool. okay. Yeah. Um, we have cultivated a bunch of smart people. And uh, so many of those you've mentioned don't take action on the important. Oh, I see. Yeah. Hence, intelligence becomes useless. Yes, that's right. So then, uh, and you say that the intelligence are complacent yes. and cynical. Yes. In in the in this society, well, yes. why do you think so? And you know, like, what what is stopping them? So it's a two part question. Right. Okay. So, um, in Singapore, we place a high value on education, and we equate it with with some sort of benefit for society. We've we pick very smart kids and we call them scholars. We label them. You are scholars. You are superior to everyone. We are going to pay for your education. Send you overseas, give you all the best opportunities, you come back and make our society better. And I, for decades, we're doing that. And I really like to ask, well, what have you done for us? What's our returns? I really need to know. Because sometimes I think um, we, we have a society of very intelligent people who have become very cynical and they don't come forward um, to express ideas on, on how our country is, is being shaped or how it's turning out. I mean, I mean, this is a step in the dark. Why do you think so? Well, um, is it, well, I'm making assumptions here, but you know, is it the golden handcuff? Because they are locked into this lifestyle of uh, wealth and uh, you know, like uh, just having beautiful things and eating nice food and hence not being able to spare the time out. Or is it the time they don't you know, just being a lawyer takes a lot of time or neither or a doctor? It's um, I'll, I'll give you the answer, which is actually a theme of many things. It's the government's fault, but but I don't mean it the way uh, people mean it. In Singapore, we've become a society where we have this um, great reliance on the government to provide solutions, to identify problems and to guide us forward. Every time something goes wrong, it's the government's fault. Um, every time something goes wrong with the haze, we say, oh, well, the government should do something about it. Go talk to the uh, Indonesians. And every time something goes wrong, like the Zika virus, oh, the government should do something about it. Um, so it creates an over-reliance. 
It does, and it's, it's really the wrong mindset because it then stops us thinking of solutions for ourselves. It stops us identifying problems for ourselves. It stops us even um, spelling out priorities for ourselves because this country is our responsibility. But that's really hard because then, you know, you're just, you're just naming things that a good government does. Yes, uh, uh, so we can have a debate about what we want a government to do. There is, there is a very basic level of government that maybe we want, which is to provide security, I mean national defense, um, and security in the form of having a police force, mm -hmm. applying law and order. Yeah. And that's it. that's it. The rest of the stuff, maybe the government should get out of the way. Maybe, uh, maybe uh, public housing, maybe public transport. Um, not, not every country has public housing or, or public transport. Right now, the government is trying to grapple with things like Uber, um, whether to have Airbnb, whether to allow people who, who live in housing estates to have Airbnb, that's good, that's bad. And sometimes I think it's not really the government's problem. It's, it's a social problem. And, and we should offer our ideas too. We shouldn't sit around and say, okay, let's wait for the government to come up with a solution so that we can criticize the government. So what do you think then is it the government's stake in this part of the solution? To guide as a, a meandering guide? Well, um, I, I don't think the government knows. And I don't think we know. Yeah. We, no one knows the, first world, the answers to the first world problem. Well, in America, for example, um, right now the feeling is government generally is not a good thing. Um, I'm not saying that their government, they think that their government is doing a bad job. It happens, that happens every election. But they are actually beginning to think that maybe we should not have so much government. Uh, same with the UK uh, when they voted for Brexit. There was this feeling that we, we don't really trust the government anymore. We, we may not need the government to do so much. Right now in Singapore, we've evolved in a certain way. We've evolved in a way where we become very reliant on the government. Uh, and that's, as you say, because we have government that's very comprehensive. They, they go into every aspect of society and they engineer it. They try to engineer it. And we kind of have confidence that they're run by smart people. But at the same time, we're kind of very critical of them. And so we've become a society where, where if we see a problem, we don't think of solution. We see a problem, we highlight it, and we criticize it, and then we blame. And that doesn't lead us anywhere. Uh, I feel that we need to come back for round two because you know there's so much more interesting things that you can share, and we can debate about. I mean, even then, yeah, even then, the question of what's important then, you know, right. what what are we what wrong things are we caring about? Uh, right. What unimportant things that we are putting too much emphasis on? Yeah, man. Um, yeah, maybe around two. Let me <laughs> just do a quick round of questions. Oh, so the one that we the initially, quick yeah, the quick fire question. Um, books or documentary you like to recommend? Wow. Okay. So I do recommend Animal Farm okay. by George Orwell. Yes. Um, what have you bought? Uh, most recently, under hundred dollars, well, that so have I, impacted you the most. I, I bought a handphone cover. Uh, for my Samsung, I got a new Samsung, and it's not the, the one that's um, the hottest phone in the world. That's a really hot product. No, I got a, a, a keyboard that makes 
my Samsung looked like a Blackberry. We've got a physical keyboard. This is not the Samsung. Um, anyway, the point of it is that it's under 100 bucks, and uh, it's because no one else makes physical keyboards anymore. Yeah, what was you? Do you still use the Samsung now, or you are using BlackBerry? Well, I'll use my I'll use my BlackBerry until it dies. Then I'll use the Samsung with the physical keyboard, and what it does is it allows me to type without looking when yeah. you have a physical keyboard, and that's very good in court because you can pretend to be paying attention when you're actually writing some long email. Got it. Yeah. Um, any advice for your eighteen-year-old self? Yeah. And yeah. thirty, and place us. Yeah. Um. I, th I think if I could travel back in time um, and I could talk to my old self, I was, I'll probably tell him, uh, just be positive and helpful. And uh, everything will turn out okay in life if you are positive and helpful. And if you're negative and unfriendly, nothing's going to come out of it. When we're young, we are very defensive and insecure because we're growing and going to be adults. And sometimes we think, oh, I better... I better create a shell, I better withdraw, I better distance myself from the rest of society. And, I, and, and, and be cynical. And, and I'd probably say, no, don't do that. Just open up. Uh, when you think of the word successful, who came into your mind and why? Oh, well, um, anyone who has a lot of time um, is a successful person. And, and time equals freedom. I'm very short of, of time. Uh, and, and our time here on Earth can be very limited. You can be as rich and successful as you like, but if you don't have any time, then you're a failure. Um, any routines or habits that you find important? I think it's very important for everyone to wake up one hour later in the morning. Just If you're supposed to wake up at 8, just lay there in bed, 8, 8.05, 8.15, and just let it sing. The world is not ending. Nothing bad will happen. Just feel it, right? Just let your heartbeat slow down, breathe a bit. You'll live longer. Good advice there. Mm. What are some of the most common misconceptions about you or your work? Oh, okay. So uh, a lot of people think lawyers have to be disagreeable, fierce, antagonistic. Uh, but it works better uh, if we are friendly and agreeable. Um, the legal community in Singapore is very small. We know everyone. And um, most, of, most of the time we get along. And it helps to solve problems um, if, you're, if you're a nice person. Uh, any say or do for the audience? Oh, um, well, uh, I, 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 apart from recommending people to sleep one hour later, I also uh, think that people should spend uh, an hour a day not doing very much. Just I call it vegetating, just um, sitting around and not, not thinking, not doing anything. Like meditation? Like meditation. Actually, that's probably a, a higher form of meditation. Yeah. 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 Uh, where can people find you or your project uh, in the interwebs? Oh, okay. Uh, on the interwebs, I think... Uh, my book isn't available, but the movie of my book is on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, it was made in 1998. Your book is available. Oh, is it right? It's uh. So I bought it on a popular, oh. uh, web store. I I can I put a link there. Oh, oh, great. Okay, I'm I'm very grateful because people always ask me. Um, I think it's in popular and I think it's in Kino Kunia. It's yeah. not on Amazon because it's such an old book. It's not on Kindle or anything like that. Anybody wants to convert it to Kindle, 
let me know. Someone once asked me to sign an autographed copy of my book that was photocopied. It was very nicely photostated with the cover and everything. I was like, oh, this is pretty impressive. It costs more to photocopy it than to buy it. Anywhere else? Uh, uh, no, no, but uh, uh, YouTube, watch the movie. Watch the movie. Yeah, that would be uh, my recommendation. Great. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, thanks very much, Brian. It's really fun. Yeah, um, we should do a round two uh, sometime. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Hey, my good folks. This is over. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed the conversation. I had so much fun speaking to Adrian. He's such a funny person. So, uh, as usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com. And uh, I can't tell you much about the upcoming episode, but there are some really exciting um, people that are coming on board uh, Misfits. I'm really excited. Uh, so if you want to find out more, you want to be notified for upcoming episode, you can go on uh, misfitsbrianvictor.com and you sign up on the mailing list. I will send you guys uh, the email when the episodes are out. So in the meantime, I hope you have a fantastic week ahead. 